Device Nation. Greetings, Device Nation. You're home for the first medical device podcast to safely accommodate 155 degrees of flexion. This is Kevin Brown, your purveyor of all things metal and plastic. I hope you are having a great day. I know I certainly am. We have an amazing doubleheader treat for you today. We get to hear from Dr. David Crawford up at JIS about his civilian and his military career. And today marks our kickoff of our special agent series. We are all agents of our distributors, most of us, and hopefully as a result of the content provided to us by former Behavioral Science Unit Chief with the FBI, Dr. Greg Vecchi, we're all going to have the title of Special Agent. And yes, it's Vecchi, not Vecchi. <laughs> I say it wrong all the time, and I know for you that listen closely, I mispronounced it a few times last week, and I, I think he doesn't care as long as there's a sir in there somewhere. I will never forget early, early in my career being introduced to a wonderful surgeon, Dr. Vandenbosch, in the surgical lounge. As was the case most of the time at that point in my life, he was talking, but I wasn't listening. I was thinking of what I was going to say next, and by the time time I got to the end of that conversation, I went to tell him it was nice to meet him. And I said, Dr. Vanden, and I got that far and forgot the rest of his name. And I mumbled something thinking if I just slurred enough letters together that I might be able to pull it off. And pull it off, I did. He was very gracious and said, it was nice to meet you too. And I, I sighed a big sigh of relief, went to the car with my sales manager. And right when he opened the door, he looked at me and he said, what did you call him? I thought, dang, I almost got away with it. Well, speaking of almost getting away with something, I was walking through the hospital the other day, and a maintenance worker was up in the ceiling, had pulled some tiles away, and was looking around. And I said, did you find any implants up there? He looked at me like I was insane. Well, I'm not insane, at least on this subject. A friend of mine was sharing with me a story back in the day of when he converted a competitive surgeon to his knee and the rep on the other side was not happy at all. The surgeon was trying out this implant one particular morning and he had to go across town. The rep had laid it all out, put it on a cart for everybody and said, I'll be right back. He said he got about three or four miles from the hospital and his phone just started blowing up. Where is the size 11 surface? They asked. He said, it's on the cart. And he said, it is not. And he could not figure that out because it had been on the cart when he left the hospital. So he raced back, and sure enough, all his 11s were gone. Six months would go by, and in the process, he lost the surgeon over that event. And a maintenance worker would be up in the ceiling doing some work on the sprinkler system. And lo and behold, found a whole bunch of 11s up there. And just for good measure found a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of laparoscopic staplers that another rep had been hiding up there on his path to being the number one rep in the country, and it would lead to a stint in jail. I have truly never understood the reps who look up at the ceiling, and instead of seeing just a innocent ceiling tile, they see an opportunity to make quota or a way to stick it to the rep on the other side. I do not get it. Well, one thing I want us all to get this week is something that Dr. Vecchi dropped in our lap, and that was the OODA loop. And you're thinking, what's an OODA loop? Well, it's four letters, O-O-D-A, as in observe, orient, decide, act. 
This model was developed by Air Force Colonel John Boyd and was used primarily in decision-making and combat theater. I will link to it in the show notes if you want to read more about it. And it is used extensively in firearms training, which is how I heard about it through Dr. Vecchi. But we're going to tweak the model just a little bit to see how can we use this model in the OR to help our decision-making as medical device reps. So UDA, observe, survey situation, and form theories. Orient, gather information to support theories. Decide, develop solutions to solve potential problems. And lastly, act, evaluate, and implement solutions. Now let's drop this model into the OR. Let's start with observation. And I want to use the word active observation, because I think you can be seeing something but not really seeing it. I can't tell you how many times uh, I've seen people looking at the OR table, but they're not really seeing it. You're, You're looking at it, but you're thinking about five other things going on. Somebody just texted you about another case across town, and you're thinking about it. You're looking at the Mayo, but you really aren't seeing what's going on. So let's just start with a premise that if we're going to operate At our highest level as medical device reps in the OR, we have to be able to actively observe what's going on, not just looking, because looking is not necessarily seeing. So active observation starts the whole deal going, because if we orient ourselves, if we're gathering information to support theories, but our observation at the very beginning is wrong, then everything that's going off of that is going to stack up in errors. Super quick example of this, you trial a size three tibia, for example, and you weren't paying attention later. Your observation was off when they decided to punt to a four and there was never any orientation of gathering more information about that. You didn't look at the trials at the very end to go, okay, which one has blood on it? Which one was clearly used here? Now you're getting into the mode where you're deciding to go pull implants and you're acting on one getting opened, and it's going to be the wrong one because you missed that at the beginning. So that's what we mean about stacking up errors just because of a faulty active observation at the beginning. And this works on the other side of the table as well. I worked with a tech one time, and I used to joke that if I showed him a ham sandwich, he would nod and say yes, because no matter what implant I showed him, when it came time to open implants, he would nod even when I knew I had made a mistake showed him the wrong thing. So he was looking at what I was getting ready to hand off, but he really wasn't seeing it. He wasn't actively observing. So put the phone down and stop thinking about anything going on outside of that OR for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it takes to get through the case. So then everything that we stack on top of that initial observation is indeed correct. So then we're going to orient ourselves. We're going to gather information to support that theory. And then we're going to develop a solution to a potential problem. And we may never, ever have to act. So what does that mean? I'm looking at the table and I'm constantly processing the next three steps, next three steps. I observe what's going on in the table. I'm gathering information to support what I'm seeing. I'm looking for instruments to support my theory. I'm developing a solution to what's going to happen next. If we don't have this, are we going to have that? And you can really drive a scrub tech crazy If you constantly act on those first three and you're constantly telling them what to do when they know what to do, I have made a lot of mistakes in that regard of not feeling out a scrub tech correctly, 
give them an opportunity to act on their own. And of course, that always trickles back to active observation, because if I'm really paying attention to what's going on in my scrub tech, I will probably have the answer. Do they need my constant involvement in every step? Once you cross that ACT line and you've said something, you can't take it back. So I'm glad there's three steps ahead of ACT to slow us down. Before we get away from the scrub tech, let me just throw this at you. The ones that can give you the most challenges on your active observations are, ironically enough, your best techs because you're letting your guard down. You're not paying attention because you know this is the best tech in the hospital. He or she has done thousands of these cases. You don't have to pay attention at all. Well, you don't know. They might have gotten two hours of sleep last night and they're getting ready to make a mistake and you checked out because they are so competent. So don't do that. Uh, Even if they're a great tech and extremely competent, always have that active observation going. Let's take this to before the case. Before you ever walked into the operating room, did you observe the instruments that were getting put up in the wash? Did you gather information to support your theory that it's all there? Did you walk through the case excruciating step-by-step, making sure that you had every single instrument in that tray? That's where trouble can find you like nobody's business, because you know what? Most instruments are silver, and they're in a silver tray, and it's so easy to look at a tray and go, that's complete, when that drill bit you need for the PFJ that is mission critical was not there. It was sitting sideways. It was silver. It's, again, on a silver background, and it was never there. That takes active observation. That takes active orientation, which will end up being a great insurance policy when you get into that case because everything is going to be there if you've just done those first two steps. And lastly, this loop comes into play even when you're checking in implants. If you're actively observing and actively orienting, gathering information, it's amazing how many times you end up calling the office to find an implant that you have. You just haven't gone through everything yet and done a good job in the active observing and active orientation. So then you end up acting, getting other people in a wad, trying to find something for you that you just know is not there. But you know what? It was there all along. If we had just spent more time on that first step of the OODA loop, I think 80, 90% of our problems in medical device go away if we pay careful attention to just that first O. You know, I used the OODA loop just this week. I observed when I was opening boxes, because that's what box openers do, right? Uh, I observed that when I pulled the implant out to hand to the scrub tech, a package insert just came flying out of there and started spiraling to the ground like one of those whirly birds out of a tree. And the scrub tech and I just both watched in horror as it spiraled just an inch away from the sterile table. I gathered information mentally going, you know, a lot of these things that you open up in the room, stuff can come flying out of it. So I developed a solution to solve a potential problem that from here on out, I was always going to have my back to the table or at least be aiming a different direction than the sterile table to open up these boxes. So I acted, I evaluated and implemented a solution based upon that first loop. This loop is good. We need to be in it all the time and be observing what we're doing and looking for opportunities to change. I thought to myself, I've been doing this job almost 30 years and I'm still learning ways that I can be doing things better, like opening up a box. (laughs) So again, 
the OODA loop. Observe, orient, decide, act. Well, a surgeon that I am so grateful he decided to loop us in on what he was doing up at JIS is Dr. David Crawford. From the 240th Forward Surgical Team in Bagram, Afghanistan to Joint Implant Surgeons in New Albany, Ohio. Truly inspiring story you're going to enjoy hearing. So let's give a great big Device Nation welcome to Dr. David Crawford. Well, Kevin, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us here at Device Nation. It's an honor to get to speak to you. I sincerely thank you for your service to our country and look forward to talking to you about that. But first, let's go back to Miami University in Ohio. What put you on the road to a career as an orthopedic surgeon? Uh, Well, there's probably a lot of bumps in the way that uh, put me in that direction. I like my partner, Keith, grew up in Columbus and was the son of a judge and a teacher. And so growing up, Judge as a father has its own uh, nuances. I still think one of the more interesting parts of my uh, childhood were being part of the amazing 1980s and 90s uh, political ads of, you know, me raking leaves of my dad and shooting basketballs while the narrator narrator is over top saying, Judge Crawford is a family man. So, <laughs> <laughs> was brought, I was brought more up in the, you know, that kind of setting of all my dad's friends were judges. Didn't really have a lot of medicine around me, you know, growing up. And I think probably like many orthopedic surgeons, was active in sports and had that you know, quintessential injury that kind of put us on this path. And mine was the decision to try to tackle a 240-pound fullback uh, with my arm and subsequently had a you know, shoulder label repair and got back to playing. I was like, this is pretty cool. Ended up doing some shadowing with an orthopedic surgeon. You know, and frankly, I was just pretty good at math and sciences and not so great at the Englishes and arts. And I think we should all try to go where our strengths you know, take us. So Went on to Miami University, the alma mater of our uh, practice founder, Dr. Tom Mallory, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Uh, but it was a great school and you know, really got into you know, the science track and the pre-med track right off the bat. It's amazing how the weeding out process goes because you know, you, you think you're pretty smart when you get into college and then you realize there's a lot of smarter people. And I was fortunate enough to keep driving on and going on the good path. And there's probably a little bit of change of what ultimately took my you know, career in the direction it did was, you know, my sophomore year, I was standing in Uptown Bakery, which is a small little bakery in Miami. It's about nine o'clock in the morning on September 11th and watching a TV and seeing, you know, planes crash into the towers. And I think we all, you know, vividly remember where we were that moment. And the only other thing I really remember also is where I was watching the OJ Simpson trial in high school. I don't know why we did that, but (laughs) I remember that as well. But yeah, certainly, you know, 9-11 was, a big deal. And I think my formative adult years, at least, you know, being cognizant of world issues. And I think most of us growing up don't pay too much attention to it. It was just a shock. And not that anything dramatically you know, changed that day for me, but I think I had much more of a sense of you know, the duty and what people sacrificed for our country and got to see the you know, war develop over the next uh, subsequent years. And so I continued on you know, the other pre-med path and and did the MCATs and all that and school interviews and ended up getting into Ohio State. And late winter, spring of my senior year, I was hanging out with my buddy of mine. We were just having lunch and talking about where futures were taking us. And he said, yeah, I'm going to go to officer candidate school. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And again, I had you know, no military in my family or you know, Upper Arlington where I grew up is certainly not a strong military community. And I thought to myself, I wonder if they need you know doctors in the military. <laughs> kind of a dumb question now. And yeah, I'm probably one of the, the handful of people across the country that actually called a recruiter. You know, they're knocking at your door or sending emails and called the guy and you know, Sergeant Pecora and said, Sergeant, I was like, do you guys need doctors in the military? He's like, absolutely. 
of course, that's invited to daily phone calls back to me to follow up, which was a you know, Pandora's box to open. And I thought about it, and it's certainly my mom was not you know, too excited about the idea. My dad was you know, very practical. and said, just tell me why you want to do it. And he loves recounting this story. And I said simply, I was like, Dad, you know, there are men and women getting injured, serving our country, and I think I could help them. And he said, that's good enough for me. So I ended up, you know, as I passed on to um, medical school, got commissioned as a second lieutenant butter bar uh, in the reserves initially. And then I opted to do my you know, basic training actually before starting med, med school. You could do, most people did it between first and second year. So in June of that year, I packed up the car to ship out to basic training and went got myself a haircut thinking I was at home, you know, military-esque. I think I left there with still about an inch length on the sides. And of course, when I showed up in San Antonio, I realized quickly yeah, that I needed to get another haircut. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was not a ton to do with orthopedics, but I think, you know, it's interesting just kind of getting a perspective of the you know, military side of folks going to medicine, you know, and basic training. And I'm using air quotes right now because it wasn't really that you know difficult. And it's not like the movies where you're getting yelled at and certainly times differ, but you know, the treatment of folks going into medicine within, especially the army is in kind of the stringency and laxity really is inversely proportional to the military's need. Meaning that if we're in the middle of a war, we'll take you if you got two legs and you're walking and we don't care if you're overweight. And at that time, obviously it was right at the beginning of the war and, you know, they really needed folks. So I got the impression they didn't want to be too mean to us. You know, if we didn't really want to do something in PT, they kind of let us go because mm-hmm. they didn't want us you know, dropping out. Um, so I, m- most of that was just, you know, doing classwork and learning about the history of the military and you know, learning all the tricks of shining boots. And I looked like I had mud on my boots when I looked at everyone else's next to me who was either prior service or like a, a military academy and learning the tricks of spray painting on the, the black polish or taking a Zippo lighter to heat it up. And of course I learned all that and I got rid of those boots and but that was my kind of indoctrination into, you know, the, the military side of things and went back and you know, jumped into med school and, you know, did, did pretty well. And I think reasonably early on, I decided I wanted to, to do surgery. And that's really the first fork in the road that anyone going into medicine, I think, should decide it's either surgery or not. Right. And if you decide the surgery route, I, you know, there's obviously a lot of factors that come into it. And, you know, being a technical guy, I like to use my hands. I mean, what better field than getting to use power tools and saws and hammers and things of that sort. And I think my personality certainly fit with the, the guys that I was around. And you know, we all know that ENT docs have a little personality, different personality than ortho and urology and whatnot. And decided that uh, orthopedics was uh, the path I wanted to go. Madigan Army. Uh, by the way, can we go back just for a second? Your degree was in zoology, and I have I, I, I have never run into anybody in my life that said, you know, I'm a zoology major. What is, what is that? Uh, I got made fun of all the time. Like, are oh, you going to be a zookeeper? Uh, Not that there's anything wrong, wrong with that. I, I love animals. I actually wanted to be a vet more than I did a you know doctor growing up. Uh, it's essentially the biology degree. Okay. So they they just call it zoology, and I did a neuroscience minor, and which was kind of a cool cool field to go into so not as cool as it sounds as far as doing anything with animals other than just kind of basic biology degree. okay i had to clear that up so madigan <laughs> army medical centers where you landed for your reconstruction fellowship uh i've covered cases at fort bragg so i know military hospitals can be a little different than civilian yeah certainly as you said i went to madigan which i 
kind of got my wish. One of the things along with wanting to join the military was to get out of Ohio. You know, I was sitting there for med school, having gone to growing up in Columbus, going to undergrad in Ohio, going to med school in Ohio, and I wanted to get out and go somewhere else. And so I pretty much picked the farthest place on a map <laughs> that I could do training, which is the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and I was super fortunate because I still think to this day it's the best training facility for orthopedics. I mean, the experience of residency is not that dramatically different uh, than a non-military hospital, you know, with a few exceptions. And we had to wear uniforms. Um, we had the PT tests. The anyone who's been in the military, you get the first indoctrination when you arrive on post and have the scavenger hunt of all these check blocks. <laughs> you sure. have to drive around to different buildings and can't figure out, you know, why you need these signatures. So that was that was a little different. You're showing up in some random door on the third floor of some building and said, why are you here? I'm like, I don't know. I need to sign this. So did the uh, two weekend processing, whatever it is. So those are some differences. And then it's, you know, it's interesting walking around. You know, we have you know, great leaders and giants in our field and in hospitals and everyone kind of falls into a different you know, position or rank, if you will. But in the military, we all wear that on our chest. You look straight at someone, you can see what's their rank who they're assigned to, how many badges of flair they have, and you know, whether they have a deployment patch on their shoulder or not, whether they've gone to airborne, air assault, which wars they've been in. And it's a very unique thing. And, you know, it's when you learn the yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, and understanding chain of command and authority, which you know, I think is a great experience for you know anyone. I think it's humbling. And it's, in my opinion, a great way to start a career in medicine. So that was kind of the, the cool thing. You know, I, Got saluted by 25, 30 year old veterans who were you know, sergeant majors. And I had to salute nurses and supply chain you know, command officers and you, you get some humility. So I think that was a very important part of my upbringing uh, in medicine and orthopedics. But we also got a lot of autonomy, which was great. You know, I, we did outside rotations at Harborview for most of our trauma, Seattle Children's, Spokane, Washington. And you know, really, as R3s, we were given. You know, opportunities to start, you know, scopes on our own, do some fracture cases. Our staff is always around, uh, but I think there was, since it was a smaller group of residents, there was a lot more, you know, trust in allowing us to, you know, kind of get rolling and the safety net, they were still there. So we certainly got that feedback when we do outside rotations and go and say, wow, you guys are just a little more confident in the uh, OR. We feel a little more comfortable. So I think that was a great training on that side, but the opportunity to also get exposure at the facilities like Har- Harborview you know, were amazing. Yeah, I also got the opportunity to work with a civilian joints guy in town who um, his name is Dr. Stephen Teeny. A beautiful thing to be able to see efficiency, and he's much like our practice now. Was doing six, seven, eight you know cases in a day, but the downside was I had to go back to the military. Where we're doing you know two joints and getting done by two o'clock. So. Right. I saw that there was this other world out there, um, but it wasn't in my near future. I've worked with surgeons before that did the flight surgeon uh, route, and they've talked to me about their training. I'm just curious, as uh, as a surgeon who was in the Army, what kind of training do you get outside of what happens in that uh, OR theater? Do they take you through weapons, combat? Yeah, I will say the one thing that I missed out on in basic training was the weapons, which is the only cool thing you get to do. If we went out to the uh, the field for I think it was three or four day field training exercise, and then a hurricane came in on day two, which was day before we were supposed to do a weapons training, so I didn't get to do it then. I did a little shooting with my father. You know, growing up, he'd take me to the range, 
but really was at uh, Fort Lewis. Uh, we had some good friends that were with the uh, First Special Forces group as well as the Rangers, and so they would take out the residents. We'd go out to be able to shoot some of the cooler weapons. Sure. One of the one of the best was probably the Barrett 50 cal. Yes. And we were shooting one one day, and we had to stop because there was an entomologist that was a mile away, and he was within range, <laughs> so we had to stop firing that weapon. Uh, then when I went to Fort Campbell, uh, had the great opportunity to be hanging out with the fifth group folks there. So they, they took me out and let me shoot the M4s on full auto and some other fun things like that. And then we did do weapons qualification uh, prior to deployment, uh, but it wasn't too stringent. I mean, they just wanted to make sure you could at least not negligently discharge a firearm and get it somewhere reasonably close to the target. Because I think the reality is if we're firing a weapon in a deployed setting, there's something wrong. Bagram. Afghanistan 240 forward surgical team. One of my best hires in my career as a device rep was a gentleman from the 82nd Airborne who did a tour there, had a lot of stories uh, about what it was like uh, on his deployment. What was it like for you? I was at Fort Campbell at the time and chugging along with a pretty much sports practice and doing all the regular things that orthopedic surgeons do until I got that wonderful email in the inbox saying, Tasker, Tasker, Tasker. And you open it up and say, oh, you've now been assigned to deploy in October 2013. <laughs> and, I, and I knew it was going to come. Uh, all my friends in different posts, and you mentioned Fort Bragg, had some good buddies that were there that were already deploying. So I knew it was inevitable, uh, but it's just always a little different when it finally you know, shows up. It's a lot of different emotions going through and you know, family planning. And it's, it's really disruptive to a practice. I mean, obviously we know we're deployed, but most things shut down for a month, month and a half before you deploy. And it really takes a month, month and a half getting back up. So spent some time transitioning that part of our practice, spending time with the family and then headed out to um, El Paso where we launched off a deployment. And I want to say for anyone who ever complains about commercial air, air travel and wait times, I really encourage you to go on a military flight and deployment (laughs) <laughs> it'll, it'll change your perception of things. I mean, we you know, we had to show up four or five hours in advance, load all our bags, hopped on a commercial flight to Bangor, Maine, which is actually an amazing experience. I take a little digression. We were we probably landed at you know, eleven o'clock at night or midnight, and there was hundreds of people there, you know, sending us off and had banners for us. There was Patriots, wow. uh, cheerleaders there, former Patriots players. I got an autograph, signed picture. Of course, I forget, <laughs> forget who it is now, but I gave it to my son. And it, it, it is very appreciated, just as a side note. But we hop off there and then go to Germany and had to unload for 12 hours and go two hours into somewhere in the country to a hotel they blocked off for us. Found out then that the folks in Germany still don't appreciate U.S. soldiers walking around in uniform around their towns. So we got <laughs> a lot of not so good looks when we were there. Right. But then you know, hopping from there and then flying into commercial air flight in uh, Kuwait and the bus, its armed guard taking us to Ali Oslin and Arif John, and then flying on a C-17. It's it was a multi-day you know, experience, and it really changes the perspective. And then the other thing is, when we flew in on the C-17, for those who have never been on one, it is godly uncomfortable seats, and you're sitting there with your bags, you know, mostly wrapped around your arms. And I'm looking at pallets in the middle, and the pallets are filled with oxygen, fuel, and ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, like, if we're going down. We're really going down. Yeah, yeah that's going to be a and, massive uh, crater. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, fast forward a lot when I was flying home in the commercial flight back, and they're like, you know, sir, you need to put your seat in the upright position for your safety. I'm like, really? 
that's going to save me is the upright position is was flying around with ammunition and fuel <laughs> at my feet before. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I landed in, in Bagram and that was when the you know, reality really struck in. Uh, of course the guys who were replacing already had their bags back and they were waving us as they're walking on the flight and see you later. Right. So you want to tell, tell me anything? Nope. Good luck. So you know, the, you got settled in and I, I was, you mentioned Fort Bragg. I was there assigned to the 240th uh, forward surgical team. So we were a mobile forward surgical te- team, which is a little bit unique. Uh, most of the FSTs, as they're called, are positioned at various locations. And what our role was to be ready to mobilize at short notice to actually airdrop in anywhere where there is a medical need outside the um, uh, initial echelons of coverage. And so all of our OR supplies and everything was palletized. And the guys I deployed with, I mean, before they left, they trained for months and months and months on end how to you know, drop this off an airplane, set up an OR within 40 minutes. So it was a cool idea. You know, we fortunately or unfortunately never needed to do that. So I was you know, there at Bagram and you know, assigned to this unit that we really didn't have any direct responsibilities there. Right. So being a type A personality, orthopedic surgeon who doesn't want to be bored, and that's my Nickname was in college afterward, Captain Hobby. I like to do a lot of things and don't like to have idle hands. I reached out to the folks who were at the hospital there at Bagram, who was the Air Force guys, and got plugged in with them uh, to do some surgeries. And the amazing thing was that when I went there, they said, yeah, well, we need to credential you. I was like, what? Like, we're in Afghanistan. And like, yep, we need to credential you. And it took like three weeks. Wow. Like, I've already credentialed at another military facility. Do you want to add another layer of bureaucratic inefficiency? So I had to sit around while I got credentialed and hang out. But, you know, it was it was very fascinating. We, you know, we were fortunate. I was there in the wintertime. So none of our troops were really getting injured. And it was also a stage of the war that it was mostly special forces guys out doing very tactful missions. And the wintertime, the mountains are snow covered. So the Taliban couldn't get over the mountains. So it was mostly we were taking care of the local Afghanis and the Afghan National Army. So a lot of what we were doing was you know, non-union care, infections. We saw septic hips. I saw some tragic things. And I saw a nine-year-old who probably had the weight of a four-year-old. And he had an osteosarcoma in his femur that was massive. I mean, he already had mets to his lungs. And the stuff that you see in these third-world countries where they don't have access to medicine, it's just it's terrible. Uh, we were actually fortunate one of the guys in my forward surgical team was a, a OBGYN oncologist. And so he actually helped out doing chemotherapy for folks and whatnot. But we did a lot of you know things I wouldn't typically do here. And I was doing, like I said, pediatric cases. I was plating you know, SI joints, you know, doing things that wasn't necessarily trained in large detail for, but it was certainly the best care you know, available for them. So anyway, it was not a bad experience in the Anyone who's deployed, you know, depending on their you know, circumstances, say it's usually much harder for the family back at home. And my wife was there with two kids. She was still working for Cardinal Health. My daughter was just born in the March or the March of the year that I went. And so she was you know, wrestling with all that stuff at home and her parents were helping out. And so that was probably the hardest thing was me you know, seeing her how to, how to deal with that. Not that she didn't keep a very positive face, but we're also very fortunate in this time of technology that I could you know, FaceTime with them and sure. you know, have communication most nights. We didn't have a great Wi-Fi signal, but it was you know far more than generations before. I can't fathom what it was like for guys in World War One to Vietnam and 
not having communication and sending letters and months back to get them. So most of my days really were waking up and eating breakfast, watching the nightly news from the States because of the time difference, working out, eating lunch, working out, <laughs> <laughs> doing, doing some surgery. So you, you get pretty creative with different uh, fitness routines. I think I put on about 10 pounds of muscle and never got that back again after that experience. Grow a beard and just tell everybody you're Delta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that was the thing. I was like, I want to be all cool and have a beard out there. And that's the, the downside of Bagram uh, where I was. You know, essentially like being back in the States on a big base and you had Sergeant Majors telling you to tuck in your shirt and all that sort of stuff. So I had to keep up all the uh, military uh, aspects. But you know, the fortunate side was that we had you know, fast food there, three or four dining facilities, four or five gyms, a movie theater. Barracks were essentially a dormitory. Uh, not that I love sharing it with four other guys, you know, but that's, that's could be far worse. So you got out and landed at Joint Implant Surgeons there in New Albany. Uh, what was the connection there that that brought you in? Yeah, so when I was you know, getting out of the military, I I had some sort of verbal offers from folks where I was at in Tennessee, and I really wanted to become a specialist. Uh, I did enjoy you know, doing a lot of sports and general things, but I wanted to be able to handle complications. And so began the fellowship application. And I will say it's another benefit of the military is that nowadays, I think it's 93, 94% of folks, uh, orthopedic residents go right into fellowship. But we're asking people to make a decision about the rest of their life at the beginning of their fourth year before they've really done anything, or at least maybe not had exposure to all the aspects. So having been out for four years, doing a bunch of different things, and I was doing some joints, I really learned you know, through that experience that that's what I wanted to do. So I went through the interview process and applied to joint implant surgeons. We're now JAS Orthopedics. We've rebranded a little bit, but it was still joint implant surgeons at that time. I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that when I was in Columbus, I really didn't know much about the practice. Obviously, Tom Mallory was a pioneer in this field and the, the first hip replacement and knee replacement in the Midwest. And I'd heard a little bit about Adolf Lombardi, but didn't know much about it. So when I you know, got the interview and all that, started digging in a lot more deep into the practice. And then certainly the first day of that interview, and when I saw the efficiencies, I think Keith was in the office that day and he saw probably 50, 60 patients. It was, it was a machine being run flawlessly, uh, eight off in the OR, banging out 10 or so cases by two or three o'clock and just the choreographed surgery and seeing how things could be. And coming from the military, it was about the starkest you know, contrast I could ever imagine. You know, what I liked as far as just the fellowship aspect of it was that they had a lot of research. You could learn kind of the business aspect of it. And they didn't have interns and it wasn't a big hostel. Because, you know, having been out for four years, I didn't want to go back to you know, really being a glorified, you know, a PGY-6, if you will. Right. Uh, not that it's still training, but I didn't want to be doing discharge summaries and other things. I certainly would if I had to, but this was a nice... Uh, fit for me, I think, at my stage in my career and the you know, opportunity that they had there. So got in with fellowship and it was a wonderful experience. I probably got a little more autonomy than some other folks just because I had been out. I, when Keith and Adolph would travel for business or you know, vacation or whatnot, I could have my own ORs and do some sports cases and some trauma cases. Probably got a little more hands-on, unsupervised stuff early on. So it was great. And somehow convinced them to let me Hang on afterward and stay at JS. Any fondness for the military make you want to go back to just doing two joints a day there? And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would love an hour and a half turnover. <laughs> I would love for only have one you know, tray of, you know, set of trays there. So when there's a wet load that we have to wait another two hours for everything to process or biologics to turn. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 
I, I love my experience in the military and I, you know, patients all the time when they say thank you for your service I'm like I, I loved it but i'm happy where i am now uh, and it's it's and i got some good friends who are still in most of them are all kind of now getting out and they're like done with it and i i, I think there's uh, pathways for career guys if that's what they want to do sure. but if you're the problem is if you're motivated and you want to work hard there's just really no incentive to do that right. and there's no there's no platform you, for you to succeed and implement change it's just there's so much institutional inertia that it's hard so it's being a JS is a much better lifestyle, uh, you know, as far as a surgeon's concerned. Yeah, very well-oiled machine up there. So tell me about your practice. What does it look like? You know, what are you doing these days? What do you really enjoy doing? Yeah, I'm still, you know, predominantly you know, joint uh, reconstructions, like my you know, partners, and that's really where our practice as a whole started off with Mallory and Lombardi and um, Keith when they came on, and even when uh, Jason Hurst and Mike Morris came on. Uh, but we have sort of branched out a little bit and. Jason does some sports and that, that's what I've continued to do as well. Uh, I got really into hip arthroscopy in the military. Uh-huh. Uh, I did some, like the last two months of my residency, uh, the sports staff I was working with, uh, was, had an interest in it. So we started doing courses together and going to visitations and at you know, Fort Campbell, that was probably 60, 70% of my practice. So I got pretty facile at it and I'm still only one of the few guys in Columbus that does it. So, Still do a fair fair amount of hip arthroscopy, you know, shoulder instability and ACL still. Uh, anything that I don't think I can do as good a job is not better than anyone else in town. I have zero qualms with passing that off, and I think that's what folks should do. And I think when we're fortunate enough to be in a city like Columbus with guys triple fellowship trained and everything, you know, there's certainly times to be doing passing things off. Just like, I don't think the hand guys should be dabbling and doing joints. You've done a lot of research over the years. Clearly that's something you enjoy doing, isn't it? I do. And I'm fortunate that we have a great support staff. I think most residents will attest that the worst part of research is sitting there looking at Excel spreadsheets and going through electronic medical records and inputting data. The, The fun part about doing it is analyzing the data and writing it up. And so I'm fortunate that we have an uh, amazing crew who dedicate their you know careers to getting things sort of teed up for us. And things just you know pop up and we'll have a question and say, hey, let's look at all the you know, Vanguard needs we did with some certain design from this date to that, that date range. And boom, I can get you know, exported a spreadsheet for it, go through it, and we can answer clinical questions. And we're also still very involved in prospective studies with uh, some sponsored and some unsponsored. So we get kind of the gamut. And I think most surgeons would enjoy the private-demic model where it's, you know, I still can be an entrepreneur and be busy and also still do the academic side of it. And I think it's important. I think we, you know, we all should pay it forward. And you know, the research I try to do is something to, better patient outcomes and provide good data to everyone. Well, speaking of clinical questions, doctor, I've got a couple I'd like to bounce off of you. You were involved in a paper about mid-level constraint without stem extensions in primary TKA. And I've got a a couple thoughts there. I, I remember a surgeon told me a long time ago, whenever there's an argument between the body and an implant, the body always wins. And, I, and I, <laughs> I, I've always thought about introducing constraint where none is particularly needed, or that we're just using it as a safety net? Are we setting up an argument where there may not have been one? I'm just curious about that. What are your thoughts on that? What did you find out? 
through that paper. Well, I, let's let's set the record straight from the beginning. None of us want to use mid-level constraint right. as a first-line treatment. I mean, it's, Agreed. It, I, I will say, unfortunately, we see some folks in certain areas and that kind of go to that right. as a primary mode, which I don't think anyone would agree, you know, agree with. And, but it needs to be there. And you know, the you know, two most common clinical scenarios were a bad valgus knee or an intraoperative oopsie on the MCL, whether it's the fellow or the uh, you know, the attending. It still happens. You know, fortunately, knock on wood, not that often. Um, but it's a good you know backup to have available. So yes, we you know, we looked at it, and it, it was because the the system that we had predominantly used, Dr. Lombardi uh, pioneered the Vanguard system, is very interchangeable. Right. And so the you can use the same tibial base plate with you know, the CR, the CR lip, the anterior stabilized, the PS, and the PS plus, which is their version of the mid-level constraint. Right. And the ability to do that obviously creates efficiency. So the, the impetus behind it was: well, are we creating without getting a stem extension? Uh, increased risk or a, a concern for tibial aseptic loosening. And really, we, we didn't see that. And we had you know, no failures for aseptic loosening. And it wasn't a you know huge cohort of patients, but it was 103 knees. And so I think it gave a good baseline. And it does speak somewhat to the design of that implant. I mean, it's got a 40 millimeter I-beam stem. So when you look at some of the you know, tibial base plates, when you're talking about putting kind of a stubby stem extension, most of them end up ultimately being at about 40 millimeters. So I think you can kind of equate to that, but we looked at it's kind of a similar thing with obese patients and looking at whether there was a higher incidence of aseptic loosening. And particularly that one was at high viscosity cement because a paper came out of uh, WashU bashing this implant with high viscosity cement. And we unfortunately were able to show that it really had a very low failure rate for that. That was my next question was the stubby stem. I saw a paper at the Southern orthopedic meeting where the surgeon detailed just how much stress was taken off that plateau by just a couple centimeter stem extension uh, on mm-hmm. the tibia tray. And and I was just curious what your thoughts were. I mean, is it a BMI thing? Do you think everybody should get a stubby? Uh, what do you think? I think it was Matt Austin. He was at uh, CCJR. He said something new. He said, like, I'm not for a stubbies for chubbies. He's like, <laughs> but I I think it really comes down to the implant that you're using and the design. If it's just a keeled implant that doesn't go down as deep, I think you just need to look at the data for that implant. I mean, there's not a ton of downside with the exception of cost. And that obviously depending on contracting and whatnot. Putting a few centimeter stem isn't going to violate a significant amount of metaphyseal bone or compromise anything else. And if with that system, it improves the surface fixation and go for it. A surgeon that I follow on Twitter put a post out recently uh, that he used the thickest polyethylene on a primary total knee he had ever used in his career. And although it looked good at the end, that this day would haunt him till the end of time. And (laughs) I got a good laugh out of that. And I looked at the paper that you were involved in, and I'm quoting, thicker polyethylene bearings are not associated with higher failure rates in primary total knee arthroplasty. Do I need to send him a copy of this so that he can move on with his life? No, 20 is pretty thick. If you get much bigger than that, you don't have many options unless you're going to start augmenting. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, this was a very very self-serving paper, uh, honestly. As a, <laughs> as a fellow, you know, we uh, we would get you know, grilled, you know, when we're putting in 16s or 18s. And how can you do this? Because uh, Keith's, uh, Keith's brother, Mike uh, Barron, published a paper showing that there was higher uh, failure rates with a thicker poly with, with different knee design. I was like, all right, well, let's just see if that holds true. Uh, this was with the Vanguard and whether you know, it really makes a difference. The 
thicker group was a much smaller number, but in the end, we didn't show a difference. So then I kind of went back to Keith and Adolf. I'm like, hey, guys, listen, it's if we do it, it's at the end of the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we still don't want you put it in 16 to 18s. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I still to this day, you know, strive for kind of you know, the lower end, you know, giving you options and obviously preserving tibial bone stock. And you know, certainly the thicker scenario is either when you have a huge whack off the tibia or somehow you got some ligament compromise and you're trying to squeeze that out with a you know, thicker poly. Currently in the works of publishing a paper on the uni thickness, whether the thicker bearings had any um, difference in outcomes in that. A paper that's been accepted for publication, the anterior stabilized versus cruciate retaining bearing. The, uh, you know, the, Long and the short is that we found that the clinical outcomes in most aspects were better with the anterior stabilized and revision rates were lower. Okay. And it was, and I presented this at AUKUS. And I think it's really, you know, if you're a diehard CR guy, I don't think this would necessarily change your practice. But if you're a PS guy and you like the balancing aspect of it, there is a bone conserving nature and an efficiency to having you know, this bearing option, you know, each implant company does has a different name for it, whether it's CS or ultra congruent, and you can get into the medial pivots and some other designs as well. I'm pretty much 100% AS guy, so I don't selectively do it. But if you're a CR guy and oh, PCL is incompetent because the fellow cut it, well, use the same system, put an anterior stabilized bearing in or whatever you know company it is, and you can keep moving forward. You're not getting out to cut the box. And and it's there's no question that a PS knee is a more mechanically feeling knee. Right. So we think that that's a benefit of it. And if you look at the AJR data, there's certainly been an uptick uh, in the past few years of uh, these more ultra congruent bearings, and I think that will continue to trend that way as well. You're included in a couple papers just about conversion of a uni uh, mm-hmm. to a total knee, and I remember the whole yep. uh, space I was in where we were talking about it HTO, and it was a lot more complicated to convert that than it was a uni. Any tips and tricks on the uni? Uh, swap out to a total? Sure. Well, first, don't do an HTO. <laughs> right. <laughs> I digress. Yeah. It's all patients who's from Kentucky. She's 58, and the guy wanted to do an HTO on her. I'm like, you have the anterior medial osteoarthritis. You need a uni. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, one of the things is starting keeping the femur on. So it depends on what kind of distal femoral referencing guide you use, but you keep the femoral component on when you make your distal femoral cut. Uh, the only time that becomes problematic is if you the knee uni that was put in, if the femur is a more distalized. So I'd put the you know, pins in the farthest back hole so you can you know, take a little more femur if you need be. So make that cut. You'll hit the implant, which is fine. Finish off your lateral side. Then take your osteotones off and take off the implant and then finish your cut. Uh, for the tibia, you know, do not reference the medial side at all for your resection. Obviously, you can look at your pre-op x-rays and see how much of a tibial resection was performed, but go just off your lateral side, and you may have, you know, that's the time where, you know, I don't usually have revision backups, you know, because most of the time we're actually putting in primary implants for this conversion, uh, but that may be a time where you need to have a revision tibia with a medial augment potentially, uh, but you rarely ever want to cut down to the base of that uh, previous medial resection. Uh, certainly, there are circumstances where you can... And then on the rotation, that's the other thing you've got to be careful of because you're missing that uh, posterior uh, medial condyle. So if you're a posterior referencing guy, uh, measure resection, then that obviously will kick your uh, rotation significantly externally. So we like to use a little magnet that's about five millimeters that goes on that the foot of the medial side to really create that native position. And then just be very cognizant of it is all. I, at this point, I don't typically, my primary knees draw out transept axis and white sides, but for those, I certainly do and make sure 
everything's lining up and you know i've used the the robot for a few of these and it's actually kind of a, a nice situation to really get things dialed in when the anatomy isn't uh, normal. I saw a LinkedIn post you did the other day, uh, 90 minutes out from a bilateral simultaneous UKA. Do you see very many of those? Any thoughts on bilateral total knee? Transparency is that is not done that often. Now that guy was very unique and we do a handful a year. Uh, and there's a number of reasons. And to be fully frank, I mean, one is the finances. And it's we are in a business, and it's unfortunately bilateral needs when done simultaneously. Surgeon gets paid half of the second, and the facility gets paid half. Right. And it is a bigger operation. So, you know, we certainly aren't driven by finances completely, but we have to be cognizant of it, um, especially for the center and even the hospitals as far as what we're getting paid. But it's finding a healthy patient and someone who's independent has the capability of rehabbing pretty well. You know, there's a lot of data out of HSS, and they've done a ton of simultaneous. The, the total knee is definitely a different surgery as well. But with unis, it's rare that we get you know, stiffness and need to do manipulation. The recovery is quicker. Uh, that particular patient was a farmer, and he had kind of a very tight timetable. Uh, we typically space our you know, joints out about six weeks, and that was going to push him into recovery from the second knee into a window when he really needed to get back working. Uh, so it's a kind of lifestyle thing as well. It gets down to, again, efficiencies. I mean, they, I think the, that patient was under anesthesia for a total of about 70 minutes. So it's not like you're you know, sitting there for a super long time. So he was able to come out of uh, anesthesia quite quickly, get up walking. He had all the support at home. And like I said, his pain was uh, very well controlled. So tell me about essential DAA technique with a standard table. I've been standing in front of a HANA table for... <laughs> uh, quite a few years, uh, resisting the urge to to help, so to speak. Tell me what that looks like without having that at your uh, disposal. Well, I certainly cannot take any credit for this. This is all Keith. Uh, he pioneered this for a practice, and we all you know, jumped on board running with this a long time before I got there. You know, so he started doing anterior hips, and he actually started off table, and then Adolf's like, well, I'm going to get on into it too. And then Adolf wanted a, a table. So right. hospital bought a table for him and it quickly ended up in the closet. We have got some you know, phenomenal PAs and phenomenal help. And I think that it is sort of imperative that you have some assistance in doing this. Right. But being off table, there's just a lot of benefits and especially at a surgery center. I mean, you're not having a store table. You're not having to buy two if you've got two rooms or three or four if you've got more. The footprint is smaller. And then the ability to have control as you maneuver. You know, when we're doing our femoral releases, our PAs are adducting, externally rotating, and we can have a very uh, tailored release to that patient to get exposure. And then the same thing with you know, assessing clinically leg lengths. Uh, I can stand at the end of the bed. I can put my hand in the malleoli, the heels. We certainly also have fluoroscopy as well to help us with that. You know, really have a complete assessment. And then the ability to adjust, assess stability. You know, there's no constraints of how much extension you need to put in the, you know, to, to be able to test. You can flex it all the way up, move it around. So I think it just liberates the limb to have a full assessment and give you all the opportunity to do that surgery. And certainly a lot of interest in this. I think many folks are shifting that direction, especially as things head toward the ASC. Is there any resources for people listening to the show to, to learn more about that? Yeah, certainly. I I know uh, Dr. Barron's got some videos on ViewMedi about it. Okay. Uh, we offer visitation to our site if there's interest. We actually have opportunities if you want to have an entire uh, ASC visitation. You can bring your staff. They can see kind of how our efficiencies work there. Anesthesia staff. They can actually have billing folks come and you know, see how that kind of side of things is run. 
Uh, so doing on-site visitations. As you mentioned, there's book chapters out there too, but I don't think there's any uh, uh, replication for seeing it in person. Sure. Uh, and certainly with the COVID area, we can you know do Zoom things as well and virtual. So ASC, you brought it up. When I think of ASC, I think <laughs> of JIS uh, in a lot of ways. So tell me what you guys are doing up there. Uh, what's the secret sauce to, to making this sustainable? What we're doing is we're doing the right thing. Right. <laughs> taking, taking our patients to the ASC. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I, I guess... I take for granted all that's been put in place prior to me. And so I can you know, flippantly say there's no secret sauce. It's not that hard. It has come at the expense of many years and many iterations of uh, everyone before me, you know, putting things in place. But ultimately the biggest hiccup I think that surgeons have, patients have, communities have is just the doctrine and the narrative from the time they see the patient. We'll see surgeons, all the meetings that my patients are different and, you know, Mobile, Alabama. My patients are different here in Iowa. They're not that much different than rural Ohio. Sure. <laughs> it's not like we're only operating on healthy, affluent people here. We've got all walks of life. You've got you know, super obese. But it's setting the tone from when they see us in the office. Now, most patients at this point in our practice expect you know outpatient surgery because that's you know, what we do. But the conversation in the office is, yep, you'll be going home the same day. And the response usually is, that's great. And if there are some concerns, we'll say, well, you need to get you know, someone to help you at your house. If you live on a second floor, can someone stay with you for a few days? And that same narrative and that same discussion is carried through the surgery center uh, schedulers. And they talk to our DME folks when they see pre-admission testing. And yeah, that's the beauty. And the problem is, and some folks try to start this and say they started at a hospital on the same day discharge, and that patient checks in the front desk, and Betty, who's been there for 30 years, says, oh, no, honey, you ain't going home today. You're <laughs> staying for three days, and they'll get you set up at the rehab facility. So I think that's, number one, the most important thing is just getting that uh, dialogue with the patient early. Obviously, having a great anesthesia team, having all your multimodal protocols in place, uh, having nurses that uh, understand the discharge instructions and the teaching, having efficiency within the surgery. It doesn't need to be that if you're a fast surgeon. Now, if you're taking two hours and all, every total knee, you know, the ASC may not be the best space for you, but you know it's efficiencies and how you do surgeries. It's also willing to be accommodating toward efficiency and instrumentation. And we, for hips, we template a hip, a template a 54, we open up one single ringer at 53. That's it. We don't wash an entire tray of ringers that we're not using over and over and over again. Our knees are down to one or two trays per case, depending which system we're using. And I think surgeons need to be willing to lean things out. And, And also, if you're there with a bunch of different surgeons, not having such an ego that your knee system or your special implants are the most important. Be willing to all come together and say, here's what we want to do. We'll all agree on using this system, whatever company it is. Let's lean it down to what we need. Let's get similar instrumentation. Because when the staff and the scrub techs and everyone can predict what you're doing next, and that's one of the beauties of JS is that for better or worse, we are, we are pretty in, inbred. You know, we all train here. So we do things the same way. And so when I reach my hands back, they know exactly what instrument I'm reaching for and which orientation. And that's where really the speed of surgery comes in. It's not coming from moving your hands fast. It's right. eliminating unnecessary steps. And I know Dr. Booth always talked about how much time it adds when you take your eyes off the surgical field to reorient. And every time you do that, so those are things that really, I mean, JS was doing this before uh, outpatient. Uh, you know, Dr. Mallory was a pioneer in choreographed surgery and efficiency, which carried on to Dr. Lombardi. Uh, but it lends itself very well to the uh, ASC 
uh, to be able to do this in an efficient manner. Got to give credit where credit's due. Zimmer did a good job with that whole efficient care model of having a cart where all yep. these individual instruments are individually wrapped. So you know you don't need to run an entire tray of femoral finishing blocks when you know at the end of the day you're only going to grab one. I have to imagine there may have been some JS influence on that. <laughs> I think there may be some senior surgeons that uh, have some consulting work there. Uh, but yeah, See how I teed that up for you? Uh, no it's been a great partnership with them but the uh no you're right i mean for a knee you know we use an ap sizing guide and you know if it's sizes whatever size you know 67 or whatever we're doing and you open up just that four in one block just that left or right femur trial uh, the tibial stuff we all lean down and it's the you know all the steps the you know the costs of cleaning everything the wrapping cost and big trays when you can individually wrap things I mean, it may not seem like a big deal but when you're pumping out thousands of joints a year it adds up quickly yeah. and it's not not just cost it's just time efficiency watch your pennies and your dollars will follow so one of the things that i know near and dear being the marketing guy that i am is the the whole front door and the back door concept the front door being you know what does it take to get people to your asc what does that look like and then on the back door side achieving such an experience that they're telling all their friends about what their experience was like uh, tell me a little bit about jis and what what are y'all doing on that front door side that back door side just to to turn it into what it's become and and so successful i would say on the front door side that, that certainly starts in our office we have a amazing crew in our office and the surgery center is a different entity, but amazing staff up there as well. And the most important thing is just treating the patient well, not getting annoyed with them, not get, you know, ever yelling at a patient, obviously. You want to feel as a very concierge experience. Sure. Everyone has a designated role and things are efficient. Patients aren't sitting in the room for 30 minutes waiting for us. We now have a pretty cool EMR system that has all of a sudden ready for provider, ready for x-ray, which I'm sure many people do. But it's just having everyone that encounters that patient give them a positive experience, uh, having everything ducks in a row, acting like we've done it before. You know, <laughs> it's not our first time to, to this rodeo. Right. Uh, and that carries then on to the, you know, the surgery center. And one of the beauties of having physician-owned surgery centers is just the nimbleness and the ability to affect change. When something is not working well, we can implement a pivot quickly. You know, if we need to do something different, whether it's a medication for a better patient experience, whatever it may be, it's not going through a committee, then the pharmacy committee, then the you know, medical executive committee, and then whatever. It's, hey, guys, we, there's some good data. This improves, whatever. We'll do it. Yep, yep, yep. Done. And then with that, we can tailor the patient experience. We can also ta- tailor the, the staff that interact with the patient. I mean, let's be frank. If there's bad employees, we don't want them you know, working with our patients because that looks poorly on us. Right. When you're either an employed physician or you're you know, a private guy working at a hospital, you can't impact that change. People aren't performing to where you know, what they need to do. They're, you know, frankly, they're gone you know, after a period of time of potentially you know, corrective action. Uh, but likewise, when, when staff are doing amazing, you know, having the ability to promote them and get them you know, where they want to go in life, I think that helps the, the you know, patient experience coming through. And then just the follow-up. You know, I, most patients, I still you know, call the next day and say, how are you doing, Mrs. Jones? You know, I did a simultaneous bilateral partial knee the other day and you know, there's a lot of LinkedIn comments. Well, how's his pain? I'm like, well, I talked to him the next day. His pain level is a three out of 10. He was doing great, heading out to therapy that afternoon. And I think that just communication and, and touch is what patients remember. I mean, no patient ever says, oh, my incision was this long or they put this implant in. It, they don't know that. That's right. 
it, they don't know what you really did during surgery. Now, I'll see if you can keep tourniquet time and sound and things of that sort. Rehab will be a little bit better. What they remember is how you treated them. And that's what I think the most valuable thing is the art of medicine and taking care of the patients. Because if you take care of the patients, they'll always take care of you. You know, I love shiny new things. That's why I do this job. But I'm starting to believe we went through this period when it was technology that everybody was using as as drivers to the front door, so to speak. But I'm a firm believer now that patient experience, if you had to look at everything and rank it, the patient experience has got to be the primary driver. Uh, somebody heard from somebody, what a great job Dr. Crawford did. And you've got to see this guy and go to JIS. I, I think that's where most of it takes place. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. Certainly, that's where industry is sort of pivoting that direction as well. You know, the perioperative care pathways, whether it's technology ads with rehab things, patient reported uh, outcome tracking, ASC efficiencies. I think the the era of big investment in metal and plastic is gone at least for a while. I don't think, yeah. especially on the hip side of things, there's not too much more we need to do to make it a very good surgery. Right. It's really these, I won't even call them technologies because I think I know where you're getting at with that with robotics and whatnot, but it's how can we better have a closed environment of patient experience that we can tailor specifically and really be able to react to any things that are not going as planned. Any advice to to surgeons out there that are just dipping their toe into this water? I mean, COVID is kind of forcing it upon a lot of people. Any pearls, pitfalls as they make this transition? Don't think it's that challenging because as a surgeon, you're not doing anything differently. The operation doesn't change with the exception of a few of the things I mentioned as far as efficiencies. If you're currently operating a hospital, I would just start at the hospital schedule some patients as outpatient, do them in the morning. And it's important when you're doing this, if it's not a facility that's done before, again, you tell that front desk staff checking the patient in, you tell the nurses in preoperative holding area, you know, Mrs. Smith is going home today. I don't want anyone telling her that it's not because the second that doubt creeps in mind, like, well, is it safe to go home? Like, yes, it's safe to go home. I mean, they, they don't know that as a patient, but it's absolutely you know, just as safe, if not more. I think, you know, kind of dabbling in the hospital setting, trying to develop your efficiencies, whether it's operating a little more smoothly and quickly and not taking as much time, if you will. Also looking at, you know, working with your vendor of choice and saying, hey, I want to take this to an ASC. You know, we got currently seven trays open for my cases. I, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> We're doing eight cases in a day. How can we start paring that down? And I think once you're comfortable and get, you know, I would say we wouldn't say more than 10 under your belt, and you feel confident that that can happen, and that transition should be very easy. You guys are probably uh, awash with reps up there. They're like roaches. Tell me about it. I just I know, I know. <laughs> I know. I, 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 self, uh, self-deprecation here. Uh, so tell me what in your mind, you know, there's a lot of reps that listen to this show. What has been things that stood out to you as what made some reps great. Yeah, I think I, I genuinely believe this that a good rep is invaluable in the operating room. Now, the caveat with white fence and things is that we have an amazing staff who've done the same surgeries over and over again. Sure. They can certainly fu- function on a day to day basis without necessarily rep in the room. Right. Not that we don't need everything there and ready and backup plans and things. But for you know most scenarios, you're, you mean, you're taking going with a doc to a hospital, like you are the lead of that back table. And you need to walk those texts through. And I think that skill set. I'd say one of the important things is just make yourself valuable. If you want to be a box opener, I know you flippantly use that, then you're going to get paid as a box opener, you're going to get treated as a box opener. 
if you want to add value, make sure you're prepared for the cases. Make sure you're setting things up. You've talked to the techs ahead of time. It's the first time you've done whatever this case is. You know, the surgeon may have gone through it, but take a trade to the tech that you know is working that day. Let's run through exactly how to assemble you know, this hinge knee that they haven't done. And here's the different things we're going to need to do. And I, I think that that will you know, boost you know, the ability of, the, of that rep to really be important. And ultimately, that will take off their careers to other avenues. And I think, as you well know, that there is a path upward and not everyone wants to stay just doing the day-to-day OR stuff. Some folks love it. Uh, some folks want to go up into the distributors and corporate and all other sort of things. Yeah, that's a good pointer right there because, and, and I'll just say I've made that mistake earlier in my career when I had a hinge case or I had something that was a little bit more complicated. I think at the beginning, I would just show up and think that my laser pointer was going to save the day and... <laughs> I realized the hard way during surgery is not the time to plan. No, no, and and you know what? You know, failing to plan is you know planning to fail. So, well, I was just adapting and overcoming, doctor. There you uh, go. Absolutely. But Let's see how many cliches. We can throw here. That's yeah. right. uh, but you know, I was doing yeah. it wrong. I changed what I was doing. Like you said, take that time the day before, find out who the nurse is, and say, by the way, tricky case coming up tomorrow, and I want you to see it before we start opening trays. And it's amazing how far that goes, not only to making the case go smooth, but mm-hmm. uh, making the nurse look good. And that's part of bringing value yeah. is, is making that staff that you're working with look as good as they possibly can. Another thing is not getting offended if a surgeon asks you a question. You know, sometimes it's legitimately asking a question. Other times it's pimping. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and one thing I, I truly hate is the response, I think. Now, obviously, if it's a random conversation, that's fine. But if I say, what's the A to P diameter change from this size to the next? Say, well, I think it's three millimeters. No. The answer is, it's this, or I don't know, let me look. Right. <laughs> those are the only two responses when it comes to serious things about that. But especially, you know, younger reps. And I'm just, you know, obviously, that's our training in orthopedics. You get pimped and you get whatever. So I'll say, hey, what's the, whatever I'm looking at here, what structure is that? And they're like, well, I don't know. Why are you asking me? And Or some, you know, comments back. And, you know, my intern year at a vascular attending, you know, tell me that when the minute someone stops asking questions is the minute that they've stopped caring. So if I'm not asking you anything or not trying to make you better, that just means I don't care. You know, and if you've blown me off or whatever, I'm going to stop asking questions. So I think, you know, if I do ask you a question or a certain ask a question, you don't know the answer. Once I'll get back to you. But most importantly, get back to them. <laughs> Don't just say, oh, he'll forget about that. I've seen that over the years. It, it always gets me nervous, especially when young reps stop asking because yeah. I know that they don't know. And the fact that they're not asking, it's either an ego thing and they don't want anybody to know that they don't know. Or like you said, they've mm-hmm. perhaps lost that zeal to know, both of which are <laughs> disaster, sure. a disaster waiting to happen. It goes both ways. And I think there's certainly, I think it's great to ask questions of a surgeon. You have to balance that with not being ridiculously annoying during vacation, sure. also reading the room, whether it's an appropriate time. Uh, but I think that dialogue is immensely important and for the rep understanding why I'm doing things. And when you learn the why, it makes it much easier, much easier to learn the what and the how. Yeah. Because you understand why it's something being done. And that especially comes through when you're looking at you know, the robotics and things and guys having to run the machines and while we're making adjustments. And if they changing gaps or alignment once you, when you truly know, you know why it's being done it makes it much easier to do it i'll never forget being in a room with another gentleman and it was the most complicated part of the case and the guy standing next to me started asking the surgeon about his weekend 
<laughs> and I was thinking, what, <laughs> what in the, what planet have I found myself on here? Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about things and appreciate the great work you're doing up there at JIS. And, and again, thank you so much for your service to our country. And I really appreciate it. Well, Kevin, I greatly appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to continuing the relationship. Wow, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for gracing us with your presence, Dr. Crawford, a.k.a. Captain Hobby. I took a lot of notes during that conversation. Love that comment about the reps that stop asking questions. And you know, I think that brings us right back to our OODA loop, because if we are actively observing what's going on in that operating room, it's going to necessarily bring up questions, right? But if we're not paying attention or we're not actively observing and orienting what's going on in that room, then it really doesn't lead to a lot more than just getting through the case. So let's ponder that as we go into our week, the OODA loop. I love it because there's three steps before you act, which is great stuff for those of us, and I count myself in this column, that come from the school of fire, ready, aim. So round one of our special agent series is in the can. Thank you so much for listening and being part of the conversation, and I look forward to seeing you all next time. Thanks again. 